Hello and welcome to Reclaiming My Theology, a podcast seeking to take our theology back from ideas and systems that oppress. I'm your host, Brandi Miller, and we are back to our regular scheduling. Thanks so much for bearing with us as we have wrestled hard with questions about how to show up in this season. Some burnout dovetailed with the challenging question around how to make and put out content when so much feels like a distraction from what's happening in Gaza right now. We are holding that life continues in the midst of violence, but we must also keep our eyes and attention focused, even when we continue moving forward in this particular work with Reclaiming My Theology. So thank you for your patience and kindness. We are back. Part of our new rhythm will also be sprinkling in a third episode each month, every now and then, to have more soft conversations about how we change and what it looks like to walk this journey of reclaiming our theology. We hope that these episodes will help us not only to change in knowledge, but offer space to engage with our formation more deeply. In this episode today, which is a long time coming and has taken so much energy, time, and research, I'm joined by Erna Hackett to talk about virginity and the strong and deep holds that it has on how we see ourselves, sex, intimacy, and God, God's self. I will name that this episode is a doozy, so take it as slow as you need to, and please, as you are able, enjoy this conversation with Erna Hackett. All right, well, let's do this. Yes! Erna, I'm so excited to have you on again because basically you're a co-host of the show. Like, you know, one in every like 10 episodes you happen to be on. And so I feel like at this point people are really familiar with you, but I am so delighted to get to have you on today. So thank you for being here. I love it. I have so much fun talking with you about these things. So thank you for having me back. Of course. And you know, this one is a, a bit of a doozy. And I want to reverse a little bit of what we do normally. I would intro a little bit of what we're doing first, but I would love for folks to get to know you on the front end because we're going to do a little switcheroo in a minute. And so Erna, in this season, what does it mean to be you? Thanks, Brandy. As always, that question, even when you know it's coming, is like a little bit of a perplexer. <laughs> but I think that on one level, to be me right now feels very beautiful. I feel like I have some wonderful relationships right now, relationship with my mom, with my friends, with my partner feel really lovely. And I feel so grateful for that. And in the same moment, I think I'm living in the same dystopian hell that Mm -hmm. all of us are living in. Like, how are we supposed to function when we are what we are seeing on social media every day, just the violence in Gaza against Palestinians to know our own government is like a part of that. Um, the dissonance of it all. So I feel, I think maybe what a lot of people feel, which is incongruent Yes. W- with both lovely moments of friendship and existential grief. Yes. Kind of both at the same time. So that's how I'm doing. Yes. Constantly. Yeah. I feel that too. I think even as we move back into producing episodes on a regular basis, there's just some pivots that we're making, like adding kind of more, the only word I have for it is pastoral, but just kind of guidance things along the way and not just content because the content by itself can't hold us as we are experiencing intensity and pain and suffering and observing for a long, long time some of the most horrific violence that we've ever seen. And so I, I think that there are many ways that it's even been hard over the last few months to put out content, especially with what's happening in Palestine because of, yeah, the insignificant feeling that it, that it, I think it just can feel very insignificant to talk about purity culture and sex and Christian subcultures when kids are dying every day. And so I'm coming back to a place of recognizing the importance of this work and producing this library of information, but it has felt really challenging to feel like I have integrity to people who are marginalized and suffering while doing things that can feel like a distraction from that work itself. I understand that on every level, because I have also 
felt that. You, I mean, I'm like, oh, I'm going to go post about something we're doing in Liberated Together. And then you open Instagram and it feels like, how am I thinking about anything other than what is happening in Gaza, in, you know, what is happening to children? How can I amplify this? And I, I just don't know if any of us know how to do this. I, I don't want us to really know how to do this. I think we're all just trying to figure it out. Um, yes. So, yeah, I appreciate that. I hold that with you. And yes. um. And I think also just navigating the reality that of holding what is happening and wanting to do everything we can to make it stop and not pretending that other pieces of life aren't continuing. Yes. Um, Again, it all feels incongruent and a little bit of an existential crisis. And yet here we are trying to do work that we find meaningful, trying to do the work thoughtfully and and care about all the things that it's important to care about. Yes, and and I and I think a lot of folks are feeling what we're feeling and are in that place of asking, how do I continue to live as though my life is going to continue on while still being people who are present to our values? And so, I can tell I've been feeling that and feeling that in our pause around things that I haven't been able to even articulate very well because it feels hard to be like, I don't want to make a podcast anymore because or in this season because something is happening far away and holding that this space, this podcast, this community is a lifeline for many folks who are just trying to hold on to any semblance of spirituality. And so I feel like I'm consistently now holding the both and of this conversation and what it means to live in this world and try to be a person who is about justice and a better Christianity that I'd actually want to be a part of. Yes. And I think the thing, I, I'm sure that what has been the engine for you even wanting to create this space, this podcast, is what makes you care about what is happening in Palestine and which yes. is what it all weaves together. Yes. Uh, what we care about here, why we have these conversations comes from the same ethic of why yes. we want um, to amplify and talk about what is happening um, to Palestinian people. They're not two different right. things, even though we're going to talk about virginity today and it might seem like it's different things, yes. but it is in the web of things, it makes sense that it's connected because it's about yes. liberation and justice yes. and wanting people to be able to live in their full humanity and exist. Yes. yes, and in their bodies. Yes. Well, Erna, I would love in all of that for you to tell the people why you're here this week in particular, because it's different than why you're normally <laughs> here. And it's just a bit of a doozy. So I'm gonna let you say it instead of me, because it really has been a, a special go to get you here today. Yes, and I'm really excited because sometimes when I come on here, I'm like, okay, I got to think really hard. You know, I really want to be prepped. But the flipping of the tables is that today I get to interview you because (laughs) um, as you and I have sort of been having conversations in passing and we have been talking about, you know, how you want to tackle this topic, I keep saying to you kind of jokingly, but actually true. I'm like, Brandy, nobody has been thinking about virginity more than you. (laughs) And we have a laugh about it. But then it's actually true. Because in the course, I think, of doing this season, in the course of covering this topic, I think you have been meditating on this, seeing the impact of, and I think doing what you do so well, which is taking things that we have all experienced, but then putting it into words, right? Like purity culture, virginity is important. I think we all know that that's like a big part of a lot of our formation, but then being able to 
articulate what we were told and how we continue to hold on to it, I think that that is wisdom, information, brilliance that you have. And so Mm. I think you need to be interviewed. We need to ask you all the questions about virginity, um, the theology, the ideology, what you have seen and how you see it impacting people and how it's connected to purity culture. So that's why I'm here, because I finally get to interview you. (laughs) And and I appreciate it. And it's been a bit of a doozy. And this is a conversation that I have been holding Uh, really tenderly, because I think that at the center of a lot of our conversations around virginity, and I wanted to do this episode like a year ago, but I've been looking and looking and looking and have not found the right person. And so here we are trying it a different way. And I'm just grateful for the opportunity to do it with you, Erna. I'm so glad. I feel really glad because I think this is such an important topic. And again, one that has loomed so large in this Mm -hmm. psyche of I mean, everyone formed by evangelical Christianity, but I think particularly for women, Mm -hmm. um, it has sat in our lives, in our minds, on our bodies in a unique way. So why don't we, are we ready to jump into it? Shall we go? Let's do it. All right. Well, let's jump into it and let's start with the overarching question, which is why do we need to talk about virginity? Why is it important that we engage this topic right now? Well, one reason is because there is no bigger idol in the evangelical Western church than a woman's virginity. That there is nothing that the church protects more, cares about more, talks indirectly and directly about than whether women are having sex or not. And I say women specifically because there isn't even room for queerness in most of our church's conversations about virginity, and we'll get into that. But we put a ton of resources around being proponents of virginity, teaching people to be virginal, rewarding virginal or what we perceive as performances of virginal behavior. And we create contexts of desirability around that concept of virginity. And so I think firstly, we have this idolization of virginity in the evangelical church. And then we have how we hold the concept of virginity in our own bodies and in how we see ourselves and think of ourselves as clean or unclean, as dirty or problematic, as lovable or unlovable. And so while we might have a macro concept of virginity out there in the church, in our theology, we also have an embodied experience of being or not being virginal or striving toward being virginal because there are social benefits to doing so. As I hear you say the phrase an idol, making an idol out of virginity, I think even for those of us who don't even espouse this whole framework anymore, we might be like, but how is it an idol? I thought it was like for real a thing, an important thing. You know, that we, most of us walked away not going, I don't think this is a thing. I, most of us walked away going, I think this is a thing. I'm just choosing not to care. But it sounds like when you say it's an idol, you're saying it's not really the thing that we were taught it was. Can you just talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, because when we talk about virginity, what we're really talking about, what we think we're talking about is sexlessness. But what we're talking about is an entire affect that we're taught to embody. And so we might say, oh, being sexless in whatever way isn't the thing that I'm holding on to. We might still hold on to like, well, God loves purity or like purity in some contexts is good or there's something that's potentially lost as I have a first sexual experience when we might actually just be mixing up violence or regret or shame with something that is actually lost. And so I think that many of us hold on to the concept of virginity because we do have embodied experiences that we connect to it, even if they're not one-to-one connections. 
You've already said a lot that I'm hoping that we can tease apart in terms of, because what I hear you saying is we've been told that virginity is like this one singular thing about not having penis to vagina sex, but you're talking about a whole ethos, culture, performativeness that has been built out around it and a theology when we talk about an idol. Mm -hmm. So hopefully we can dive into that more, but maybe we can just start by defining terms a little bit. How would you then define what virginity is. Yeah, so virginity is hard because even though the church in the West is largely anti-science, it's framed as like a scientific or biological concept with spiritual implications. When in reality, virginity is a mythological indicator of sexual purity or a metaphor for sexual purity. It's a way of saying something happened in your body and that represents something larger about your soul or your worth or yourself. It's how in purity culture we can get to you're a crumpled up flower or a dirty rag or a poop smoothie because we say <laughs> chewed up piece of gum because we do say things like, oh, when you quote lose your virginity or and like even just just kind of peep the language around it. Right. It's he takes her virginity. She saves it for it is stolen from her. There's there's this objectification of this thing that happens, which we have no metaphor for for any other thing in our lives. Like when I lose a tooth, I don't ascribe some kind of spiritual metaphor to something that happens in my body in that way. But for virginity, we do because we superimpose a not true biological reality mixed with a spiritual metaphor. Um, and what I mean by that is many of us are taught, even, and this is like very medieval, that the indicator of one quote unquote losing their virginity is bleeding during penis and vagina intercourse. That like you can know the woman is a virgin historically because there is blood. But what we've learned about biology in the last hundred years is that not everyone who has a vagina has a hymen and that hymens don't typically tear. They're stretchy. They're porous. Some are full, like fully cover the, vag like the vaginal canal. There's so many ways that hymens can be and they usually don't break or bleed. Usually bleeding in first sexual encounters happens because of lack of lubrication. Namely, people go at it too fast and aren't being attentive to the ways that their genitals are responding to sexual activity. But when that becomes our indicator historically and biologically, we assume that something is actually happening when we're having sex for the first time that has some kind of significant soul implication. Ah, the soul implication, or dare we say the soul ties that yes. so many of us were told that, you know, if you have sex with someone, if you give your virginity to someone, there was, I really appreciate this word mythological, because that's kind of the level of power it takes on in the imagination. Now you have like a mythological connection to this person. And it is, it's a weird kind of Venn diagram of biological, spiritual theological realities that are like brought into existence through this singular act. Yes. And, and even said differently and more simply, virginity is not a scientifically or biologically significant concept. It has no physiological meaning. Thus, we have to know it as a concept to create meaning, consequence, and behavior by adding philosophical or theological implications to this idea. I think when I, from what I know about kind of the importance of virginity, I know at some point it took on some importance because it was about inheritance, right? It was about like making sure that, you know, the person that this 
woman was giving birth to was the seed of this man. But we have moved past that as a significance and or that as the meaning or importance of who has access to a particular person's vagina. And so why do you think it has continued to take on, as you said, this mythological indicator of purity? What has been the purpose of that evolution because it's no longer as rooted in inheritance as it used to be. And so as you see, as you look at this whole creation of this mythology, why do you think that's happened? I don't know if you can answer that question, but I thought I would ask. (laughs) Well, I think I'll actually just take us deeper into the history that you're talking about, which is the concept that virginity is a cultural commodity. It's used to bind families, to generate wealth, and to ensure the continuation of bloodlines. So men defended and were culturally taught to defend defend the virginity of their daughters and community members as one would modernly defend their property. And there were st- strong consequences, including death, to those who violated the solemnity of virginity. So it wasn't a conversation about sex, about, uh, it wasn't a conversation about consent or respect or responsibility. It was a conversation about property. And so the early social construction of virginity was intended to use sexual encounters as a means of property transfer and had little to do with whether one had had sex or had their hymen torn. Um, More so, it had to do with guaranteeing the purity of bloodline and full ownership of women in patriarchal cultures. So we can already tie the existence of virginity to patriarchy to begin with. And in that, ownership of women's bodies, ideologically and practically, allowed for the easy defense of virginity, particularly in Christian contexts. Um, But what we end up with is this shift that happens in the 1890s and early 1900s, where we get this weird notion that women are people and get to have agency over their own bodies. And it results in and kind of builds toward the sexual revolution in the 1960s. And we see a shift culturally from a patriarchal and curiarchical, so like an intersecting patriarchal culture that creates a problem for the church that men are no longer the arbiters of women's bodies, sexuality, and virginity in a culturally regulated way. And that gets connected to things like national security. So in the 60s, there's this rise in the religious right. So think like 60s, 70s, 80s, things like your James Dobsons of the world who start to espouse an ideology that to save the world, Jesus is trying to create Christian families. And so sex matters because it's a means by which procreation and pleasure go together to create a little Christian army to Christianize specifically the United States. And so a protection of virginity becomes a cultural imperative in order to protect God's mission to save the world. And so we don't even have to talk about heteronormativity or queerness in any of that yet because we can just say virginity becomes a tool to defend national security and to Christianize the world. And so it's not just as benign as Oh, property transfer. It's that property transfer ideologies give way for controlling women's bodies, controlling people with vaginas, capacity to make decisions and have agency for themselves by saying that to violate one's virginity or to violate purity is to ruin God's plan. I don't know if I've ever heard it articulated that way. So I feel like I might need you to sit with me just a little bit more in that, particularly around this national security idea. I'm like, okay, I get the whole, like we're making little Christian families, but can you keep unpacking a little bit like how that gets connected to the politic and to national security? That's a good question. 
And what I think we can say with a lot of certainty is that it's much easier to regulate people's sexuality or to believe you're regulating people's sexuality rather than their money or their violence or other types of issues. And so there's this group of men, we, let's think like Tim LaHaye, James Dobson, all of, the, all of these dudes who are John Piper, Wayne Grudem, who are seeing what they see as cultural and social collapse. And they start to tie that to particular communities in the United States, mm. right? We see a lot of their ideologies and their bigotry show up in the AIDS crisis in the 80s and 90s. We see it showing up in how they, uh, I will say demonize, I think it's an appropriate word, women during the sexual revolution and how they fought tooth and nail against any kind of rights for queer folks or protections of queer folks. And so because one of the main things that they saw outside of themselves wasn't misuse of money or violence, although you can say something about like how they talked about black communities in that season too, but that was also connected to sex and uh, different notions around who is more sexually violent. So all of those kinds of things were connected. But what it offered was a picture, a particular portrait of debauchery that they could pull back to horror narratives in the Bible. And so mm. it would say, you know, the uh, adulterous woman in Proverbs goes out into the streets shouting, come to me, you know, come to me, come to me, come to me. These weird interpretations of Potiphar's wife somehow being this like horrible, horrible person who Joseph's just this like strong man resisting. And so there became a social and cultural imperative to be sexually pure for the sake of defending and resisting cultural damnation, as I think they would have said or called it. And so defending virginity becomes a really practical way. Doing abstinence-only education becomes a very practical way to try to ensure that society doesn't collapse and therefore Jesus comes back sooner. So there's a lot of theology and conspiracy theory stuff that gets tied up in it, but that's the gist of it. That's so interesting because as you say that, I think that some of the ways maybe I would have heard that is like, well, this is like the collapse of American society mm -hmm. and Amer some of the things that you're pointing to. If we allow this to continue, it's the collapse of this great country as we know it. And you're kind of tracing it back to some of these particular um, ideologies that always end up coming down to controlling women and controlling yes. women's bodies and how incredibly threatening it is to the very fabric of society if we do not keep that literally under lock and key. Yes, and in it, uh, virginity was framed as virtue. So when you have a, what you consider a cultural collapse showing up, being virginal becomes a virtue that you pursue that gets tied to other things. Um, stuff that I would call like gentle complementarianism. So it's less harsh and brutal than like old complementarianism that's just like women are the worst and they need to come alongside their husband because they're a rib and more dressed in language of modesty, love, respect, roles, submission. And so it's a way of keeping women in submission while also controlling what you believe is a theological reality to coax Jesus to coming home and like coming home, quote, coming home. And I think in that, and I'm going to talk about this in an episode in a couple of weeks, uh, there are these strong ties between purity culture, Christian romance, and Christian Zionism because the purity of a nation depends, is the thing that will bring Jesus back. And so the protection of Israel and the moral control of a society go together really significantly to create, yeah, a context where Jesus would come back. And so this stuff around virginity goes so deep because it is inherently a political tool that's been used historically. The long pause comes from the oof in my mind of... <laughs> of you connecting all those things to each other. I think 
something that feels worth teasing apart, and maybe we can do that further into the conversation or here, but you just said the statement, you know, virginity was such an indicator of virtue. And I think that that lingers for a long time, even when we are able to articulate that we don't agree. I think so many of us who have been formed by purity culture still feel like, but virginity's better, right? Like abstinence is better. And it feels like that stays with us. Can we explore that a little? Or do you want to explore that a little bit down the line when we hit practicals more? I mean, no, I, I think it's it's fine. I think that some of the reason it sticks is because it is tied to theological promises. Uh, that being a virgin is a, what we're told about virginity, for women specifically. Um, the reason we're talking about women so much is because virginity impacts women differently than it does men. And I'm talking in binaries because that's where the conversation has happened. But I think about this in terms of queerness and transness pretty frequently because there's a an utter erasure that happens in this conversation because it is centered around penis and vagina sex that really makes like a penis seem like a very powerful thing that like is transcendent to the very soul level. So like it's like even think about that with virginity. It's, it's like a strange thing that like having a penis inside of you changes the the soul build of how you are. Like it's such a strange concept, but that doesn't go away quickly. And so we have that ideology. And then we have this sentiment that if you are a virgin, God will give you a better life. That if you are virginal, you will have a spouse that doesn't cheat on you. You will have a fulfilling life. You will live your life's purpose. You will have kids that are obedient and follow Jesus. You will have transcendent sex when you do start having sex, which that is also a myth and a lie. Um, because the insistence on virginity means an insistence on abstinence-only education, education in heavy quotes. And so we don't actually learn about sex and then are suddenly expected to have transcendent sex once we do have it. But those promises are given to us. Like if we want to have a relationally healthy life, then like, okay, I will, okay, I found this book, this youth ministry book recently that was like 20 messages for youth ministry. And it had this activity in the book called The Ladder Activity. And this was like in the late 80s, but the ideology still settle. And in this activity, what the participants were supposed to do was to get one of their smaller youth group members to slowly climb at the queue of a youth pastor, a tall ladder. And you were supposed to have someone who was the shaker of the ladder at the bottom of it. And the youth leader would say a script and have some volunteers acting it out that show a progression of people going farther and farther in a relationship and how hard the fall will be the farther you go in a relationship. So it's like the first step is like you lock eyes, like, oh, it's not, and you shake the ladder and it's like super stable and it's not going to hurt if they fall. And it goes up, you know, to holding hands, to kissing. And they're like, now it's really going to hurt. And by the time they get to like making out or like what they call heavy groping. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is, there is no, <laughs> abstinence only education makes us sound so foolish in our conversations about these things. But they're like, you know, breaking up would be devastating, heartbreaking, brutal. And when they get to the one about like PNV intercourse, it's like the couple breaks up and they have dark thoughts and they start to contemplate horrible options. And so the literal message that you're given about virginity or about having sex is that it will make you want to die. Like that that breaking up after sex will make you want to die. And while that might be, you know, right, there might be pain associated with our breakups, our relationships, how we are in our sexual lives, 
when you tell someone that they will feel a way about something and then you add the emotionality of a spiritual community behind that, it becomes really easy to mistake what is indoctrination with the Holy Spirit, what is just not knowing how you feel about an experience with spiritual shame and believing that God hates you. And so I think that we hold on to virginity because we've been given messages that say that having sex will ruin your life. Yes, we really have. We really have. And I think it runs so deep that even when we no longer espouse so many other frameworks, we sort of take that with us. I think too, I just want to articulate or like revisit what you said, which is these frameworks about virginity were pretty much imposed on women. The guys were having sex and it was always like, well, that's a little bit of a shame, but won't it be nice for the girls that he has a little bit of experience Mm -hmm. was literally kind of the narrative. But oh my God, if a woman, if a girl, if a teenager, if she has sex, then let us iterate a million terrible things that will happen to her that she will never come back from and will make her utterly undesirable forever to these straight men. And again, the whole narrative exists in the gender binary, in heterosexuality, for the pleasure of the president. I mean, for straight men, you know, just that is who we exist for. Yes. And that connection of virginity, like, being penis and vagi- vagina, vagina, <laughs> penis in vagina intercourse. Oh my god, I lost my train of thought with vagina. <laughs> it's virgin. It's virgin meets vagina. It's vagina. Vagina. <laughs> Do you have a vagina? <laughs> well, if I'm gonna leave this in. Uh- <laughs> There is a concept around desirability that becomes really prevalent that connects being hyper feminine or hyper masculine and virginity to desirability. And in that, it makes people who are queer or who are trans or non binary utterly undesirable or erased. And so I think the virginal desirability is really tied to white womanhood and works to erase and to create context for violently enforcing. Christian, Western, conservative views on sex a moral necessity rather than something where you can just mind your own business. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and it is so important to name that it is a hierarchy and the Mm -hmm. highest level of the hierarchy is always going to be thin, white, young women. And it's eerie to say that in the midst of this iteration of the trad wife, traditional wife, um, homesteading wife thing that's happening on Instagram because and other social media platforms, um, because when you understand what that threads back to and why that is being put up on such a pedestal and kind of held up as the ideal version of femininity, of marriage, of womanhood. Um, it's distressing and disturbing to see the fan- the flames of that being fanned into sort of like this is true liberation. Yes. And that's what they say, too, is like, I choose to do this. I want to do this. This is my life's calling. And I'm whatever. If you want to be a trad wife and that's what works for you, you're happy with that. That's the life you actually want to live. Have at it. Like, 
go live your hetero domestic bliss. That's just fine. But I think what happens is that that narrative has social power that reinforces the desirability notions that we already have. And it says that women then with autonomy uh, need to be punished or subjugated in order to keep a moral high ground in the church's ideologies. And so that stuff is very troubling to me and at its roots has a lot of ties to rape culture in marriages, has a lot of ties to white nationalism and its history around, again, building families for the sake of national security, like we said earlier. All of that stuff, once distilled down to its origin points, it's a bad look. Well, and it feels important to just name I don't think we need to take a deep dive into this topic, but because the virginity of women of color, of Asian women, of indigenous women, of black women, of Latina women is not valuable, the way that that has played out in American militarism and imperialism in other countries, like you go and fight to protect white women's virginity, but you can utterly do violence to other women yes. because they become a means to the ultimate goal. It not only erases women of color, but actually creates such a culture that tolerates violence towards them because they do not possess the thing that makes white women valuable. Yes. The pureness, the pureness that must be protected. Yes, and then you create an oppression Olympics among women of color to be the most pure. You have this, or like to act the most white or to ascribe toward white femininity in a particular way that makes you safer. Because I know that for like a lot of my friends who are black women, a performance of white femininity keeps us safe. Mm. It keeps us safe because it makes us seem more pure, uh, more receptive to or yeah, more receptive to compassion when or like makes other people more compassionate when they hear of our suffering, particularly sexual suffering or, or in dating and marriages. There just isn't a lot of compassion. And I think it falls on this. I realize I'm talking so fast because there's just so much in my brain around this. But it falls onto this this uh, great chain of being, this Linnaeus, you know, popularized by Ben Franklin kind of idea that at the top of society are white folks and at the bottom are black folks and everyone else is movable as is serviceable to white society. And one of the ways in which women of color end up being movable is in their performance of white femininity for their own safety. And maybe can we maybe spell that out a little bit more? Because I don't know if everyone's going to know, like, well, what would it look like then for a black woman to perform white femininity in a practical way? Because um, I think as a concept, it sort of makes sense. But then what's a situation where that might play out? Yeah, I mean, some of what it makes me think about is that there are societal and cultural benefits to performing white virginity. Uh I think I've talked about this before on the podcast, but the contract, it's, it's who gets to be a child and who gets to be a woman and that black women are considered women long before they're grown. And so there's a way that if you're told your whole life that you are an adult who can be preyed on, who can be treated in certain ways there's a certain type of subservience like white subservience that i think black women can act out in church spaces to be like no i'm not like those other people those other people being our people and even if there isn't and that's within the imagination like the imagined blackness that white christians often hold and so i think about how little concern there was for Aaliyah in the context of r kelly i think about how Beyonce was considered hypersexual, but Britney Spears was considered super virginal. And that almost every celebrity that I grew up with, I think about like Christina Aguilera, Britney Spears, even Miley Cyrus, 
had these major backlashes from the church when they started to produce sexier music. And so that and that felt like they was blamed a bunch of times on like hip hop or the music industry, which was being flavored as black. And so there were incentives to withdraw from any kind of culture that would be considered black because it would take you into a path of, and you know, right, this was politically framed too, like toward uh, welfare queens, you know, so let's talk about Reagan. It was framed around uh, the moral the moral collapse of the black community in the midst of fatherlessness. So you can even hear the patriarchal ties to virginity coming back, that black women would be better off if they had fathers, which I'm like, I mean, don't incarcerate our people, and that probably does change our family structure. But the tie of there is no father in your space to you are a whore is a really particular path that we make really nice in Christian spaces. So the less black you are, the more desirable you are, and the more virginal you seem. I mean, I think you're naming so many images, tropes, frameworks that we absorb through pop culture. I mean, I remember coming up in the Britney Spears, Beyonce era, and literally there were magazine headlines nonstop about Britney's virginity, Yes, which is troubling to consider that that was something that people mm-hmm. were like, let's write headlines about this. But Beyonce was essentially the same age, producing, mu- releasing songs at almost the exact same time. And I don't think in the public consciousness, Beyonce was ever a teenage girl, nor was she ever a virgin. Nope. Nope. Most certainly not. And it is the tie of anti-blackness to purity culture that is insidious and present. And I think it's really true that every time these white girls or white presenting girls came out of Disney kids and wanted to show that they were now adults, they moved towards what was then associated with black styles of music, black culture. Yes. That's how they claimed a proximity to being sexualized. And then they looped right out of it. Um, So I think we see in their arc, they know intuitively where purity rests, where sexualization rests, where uh, adulthood rests, where they get protected and went in, exploited, and then moved back out of it in a way that obviously only white women can do and others cannot. Absolutely. Mm. Okay, hold on, I'm going to take a breath. We've covered so many topics. Yeah, yeah, we're really up in here. (laughs) Okay. In the weeds. Can I say one thing before that? Of course. On the celebrities piece, Because I think the church loves, I don't think, the church loves an object lesson. And what better object is there than people in church spaces? Woof. But pointing out virginal celebrities that you should want to be like, and then watching them, quote unquote, fall, always meant that there was a, see, we told you that the pull of the world is too strong. And purity culture comes with a series of tools that are meant to protect virginity. And one of those is the shaming of public figures who, quote unquote, lose their virginal space, you know, like virginal affect. And so like while there are other tools of defending virginity, like abstinence only education, which does not work and does not make people have less sex. It just makes people have less safe sex. Purity rings, pledges, courtship instead of dating and the enforcement of modesty. There's just like a lot of tools that are kind of in that toolkit that merge together to create this like giant wall that's trying to protect people from, I, again, I say losing their virginity as though it's something that you can lose. Again, you know by now I don't believe in it as a social concept, but it is 
but just because it's so, a social construction doesn't mean that it doesn't have real implications. And those tools were used to enforce real implications of how people engage with their sex lives. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think to just to take a moment to talk about you, I think the description of all these things coming together to create a wall that reduces the conversation down to this singular moment, have you had penis vagina sex? Before we talk, it seems worth just maybe naming all the things that we get cut off from when we get stuck behind that wall. Because, again, they want us to be so obsessed with did you lose it or did you not lose it? Are you pure or are not you? You are not pure. That we, the whole conversation around our bodies, sexuality, desire gets so reduced and we don't actually always gain, expand that on the other side. So maybe we could name like, what do you think gets stuck behind that wall that we don't have access to that we should think about reclaiming yes. as we do this work? Well, and to be to be hyper, hyper clear about what you're naming, it's that sex exists in binaries and purity exists in binaries. It's either you are or you are not. You have or you have not. When anyone who has had a sexual relationship knows that there's a lot of space between and a lot of things between or outside of or around, you've never touched somebody's hand in your whole life and now their penis is in you, right? Like, And I think that that, that kind of binary of like, it is what we end up in. And so if that's the space that you occupy where it's it's nothing or it's what is considered everything, then you necessarily have to cut off parts of yourself. You have to cut off an exploration of what you desire, about what you like. And, and I think the conversation about desire gets kind of strange because I've heard people say to me, you're just trying to justify your own behavior. And I'm like, oh my God, y'all do not know me. Purity culture worked on me, bro. Like it really did. Like <laughs> That shit worked and it stuck and it has shaped a lot of my behavior, you know? And so I think there's like this strange idea that opening up a conversation about desire is opening up a trap door to sin. And what I think is more important than that is to say that not all desires are good. Not all desires should be acted on. Not all desires should be explored. But we should be able to have the process of engaging for ourselves what those things are so that when we are in sexual experiences or in intimate spaces or sensual spaces, we're not just acting out of impulse, but we're acting out of our values that show up in our sexual lives too. And so I want to talk about that. I want to name that. Like I can hear the question before it shows up that not engaging with your desires doesn't help you not act on them. It just makes you a repressed little weirdo about them who doesn't engage with their values around those things. But yeah, I think it cuts off our ability to know what we desire and what we like. I think it cuts off our sense of safety in sexual experiences or relationships. I think for many people, like I know a ton of women who have had their first sexual encounters with their partners after they're married who are just scared. Mm -hmm. Like I know people who did not kiss until they were married and then had sex the night they were married. That shit's scary. Like that is a big jump to make. And a lot of people, like I know a lot of people who have had really severe cases of vaginismus because your body has been told forever that something is so problematic and then you're trying suddenly trying to jump into something that you don't know anything about because you've had no education around and so i think we're cut off from desire and education primarily but cut off from our own sense of what we like and know in our own bodies too and it just makes me 
feel sad because the situation that you're describing, I think, has been true for so many folks. But then I think Christian women end up so isolated because they've been told like they're supposed to be, you know, just having wonderful sex now and the source of so much pleasure for their husband. And the way Mm -hmm. that the you know, the framework continues is like, well, and if your husband cheats on you, it's because you weren't like having sex with him enough and it's your fault anyway. And so there's no, even on the other side, when you do get to start having sex, there's still no conversation about Mm -hmm. pleasure, about desire, about getting to know your body. And it's so sad because I think all those things were made by creator and they're actually good. (laughs) And so it's so sad that we get so incredibly um, cut off from them and even after let's say you do the thing you get into a heterosexual marriage it's still not about being able to get to know yourself and your body in that way and I think there's a lot of grief you know when I, I hear that scenario described because I think it yes. goes on yes and I want to name specifically for queer folks and for ace folks two different things for queer folks generally we're cut off from an exploration of our queerness. We are cut off from seeing any kind of queer intimacy as being sex because sex gets defined as one very particular expression and that and that frames sex as there's there's only two reasons to have sex. It's to procreate or to have pleasure. And that's all centered around, right, men's bloodlines and men's pleasure is, is truly what it is. And so queer sex gets erased entirely. And then for ace folks, you're not given space to decide or to know whether you would want to have sex or not. And if you do not want to have sex, that you're missing out on this like transcendent experience that somehow is the closest thing to divine that you will ever experience. And so I think for many folks, there hasn't been space to explore a particular lack of sexual desire because it's framed so strongly as this ultimate thing or this ultimate reward for relational piety. Yeah. I so appreciate you naming that. Okay, I'm going to take a breath now because now we're in this place of sadness. Hold on. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. All right, I do feel like we should at least come back to taking a pass around the theology stuff. Is that too hard of a left turn where we are right now? No, because to talk about the culture gives us an on-ramp to understand why the theology makes no sense. (laughs) Awesome. Well, we've talked about how prevalent this is. We've talked about some of the impacts of it. And I think it would just be helpful to come back and talk about what were some of the theological frameworks that were used to animate this whole discourse and to make us believe like this is just the most important thing to being a Christian and the Mm -hmm. most important thing about you as a Christian woman. Um, yeah, maybe you can name some of those. Because I think for me, I'm like, what were the theologies that were used? And I realized this is really one of those things that felt kind of um, absorbed in the water versus yes. like spelt out explicitly. Yes. Um, but maybe you can help us spell out what was being communicated to us. Well, well, the hard thing is when we look at the Bible itself, there is not a compelling case for virginity outside of these patriarchal frames. When you look at why people defend virginity in the Bible, it is about bloodline. And so there, there's firstly that. And we can say this is true with most things about teachings in about sex in the Bible. 
that when we use stories and the books, like the letters of Paul, to articulate a sexual ethic, we will end up in these strange places that somehow sidestep the things that the Bible teaches consistently, like honor, respect, knowing, community, sacrifice, being out for each other's good. We somehow sidestep all of those for really simple things that we then have to do a lot of work to justify. And I know this because when I was a campus minister, I had some students approach me being like, hey, straight up, we want to start having sex. And we've been looking in the Bible and like, it doesn't seem like there's a lot there. Like, it doesn't seem like there's a there there. And we need to know from you, like, why should we not be doing this? Because we want to be and it doesn't make sense for us not to be like, we're going to marry each other, you know, whatever. And I was like, I've got nothing. Like, I've got a couple of verses that I could throw at you. But what I more have is like my inner varsity staff policy that is much more scary to me than the Bible. And so I realized I had very little to say to them. But I can walk us through some of the things that we have been told that make up that water that you're describing that we swim in. And I'm sure you have some of these too. Uh, some of them were the easy ones. Like Paul says, like it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So it gives this implication that to have sex as an unmarried person is to burn with passion and to create self-destruction in your lives. And it's it's confusing because a lot of what Paul is talking about is sexual abuse, particularly of children, um, in idol worship scenarios. And so Paul's not even talking about what we're talking about. And Paul believes that Jesus is coming back like tomorrow or in two weeks. And so he's trying to create this hyper-pure community, like hyper-connected and hyper-pure because he believes that what we would call apocalyptic, apocalyptic experiences are happening right now. So I understand his seriousness around those concepts, but I think his context does matter for how strongly he articulates some of the things that he does. And he's largely not speaking to people like us. So while I think a lot of the frames from Paul's text can be helpful, I think the explicit things that we use around him are not particularly good. So he does like, your body is a temple. And I'm like, okay, your body is a temple. It's a place of generosity, self-giving, uh, love, protection of the people. And it's like, no, it's just like a place there you don't bind with a prostitute. And you're like, okay, like... That's not really what like a 14 year old needs to be hearing when they're learning about a sexual <laughs> ethic, but that's what I was given. Or it's like the adulterous woman, like I said, like is crying out from the streets or God is punishing Sodom and Gomorrah for sexual activity. And so most of what we're given in our teaching about the Bible is consequence or urgency. And neither of those are good ways to enter a theological conversation. So I think those are the harder sides the softer edges are like, oh, we're going to go to virginity as a metaphor for faithfulness to Christ. Mm. And that it's a metaphor to talk about faithfulness between Christ and the church. I heard so many teachings on Hosea that led where, where what it's talking about is faithfulness to the way of God, that God is teaching Israel, that God is inviting people into a self-giving and self-loving relationship where they are following the law in such a way that magnifies the goodness of the whole community and we're like shouldn't have sex with a whore like hmm but isn't god so good that even if you're a whore god loves you like that's what we got out of those passages and so virginity is metaphorized in the relationship between christ and the church so virginity equals fidelity and fidelity equals closeness to jesus and that equals that jesus is coming back soon so if you live the metaphor and you hope for that consequence that jesus would come back to you and be a faithful partner, then your violation of your own virginity is a violation of the faithfulness of Jesus too. So I think there's things like that that come to the top of my mind, but I have a dozen other things I could talk about, but I would love to hear some of what you were taught or have thought about. 
I mean, I think the one I've thought about the most is Mary, you know, the mother of Jesus. She's kind of our like greatest model of faithfulness because she got to bring Jesus into the world and she did it without making herself impure through penis. I mean, the obsession with Mary's virginity is pretty intense and kind of hard to figure out because you're like, well, it's it's a miracle. Like how Jesus came into the world is connected to virginity. So it sort of feels like Mary becomes the strong argument. And then you have the other Mary who's like out in these streets. And so she's the contrast. You have out in these streets, Mary, and then Jesus's mom, Mary. And because, you know, you really only had men exegeting the Bible for a couple thousand years, like what they really fixated on with Mary wasn't like, who she was, how she theologized about her experience, like how she co-created with God. It was just how they interpreted this idea of the virgin birth Mm -hmm. and how that became just inflated and turned into something. I don't think it was ever meant to, but um, that's that's one of the first ones that comes to mind. Yeah, for sure. And and in that, what feels hard is that we start to contrast in that situation, virginity and like promiscuity, but more often virginity and adultery, which are not, they're not in the same category. And so I think a lot of us are given, like we're given the woman who's caught in the act of adultery. Isn't Jesus so good because he loves someone who's living in sexual sin? And you're like, Ooh, I don't think that's it. Like a lot of our conversations about virginity are really about, isn't it so great that God can love a whore? And like, you don't want to be that whore that God has to love or that God has to say, go and sin no more to. And that happens because we're talking about adultery, not actually about virginity. And the only place where I've been kind of confronted around this is in Jesus's teachings, right? In I think it's like in Mark 7, where he's talking about what comes out of a person defiles, defiles them. And at the top of that list is sexual immorality, which, right, is this uh, word porneia, which then we use to to say fornication. And fornication is sex outside of marriage. And so we're like, see, Jesus hates it. And I'm like, okay, but like, even if that were the case, the tools that we use to enforce that are in and of themselves problematic. And the theology that would tell us not to is, to use an appropriate word, flaccid at best. (laughs) Yes. I think as I'm listening to you talk about these different examples, I think that the depth of importance of virginity, like you said, it is mythology. And so it almost feels like it can't be, its importance can't be logicked out of us because you're right. It is equated with purity equated with just being valuable, like, are you good at all, worthy at all? And in such a wildly misogynistic culture, for it's not hard to convince women that they are unclean, not good, and difficult to love, and that creator is overcoming a lot. And yes. so I, it, it feels like it's getting overlaid onto that. And as, as I'm listening to you, I'm like, yeah, my logic brain could be like, oh, okay, so maybe like it's not as important as like Christianity was, you know, I was told or this whole ethos that was put on me. And yet it, this teaching doesn't feel like it lives in my logic brain. It lives somewhere yes. else. Well, and I think there's another reason for that. And it's that, well, there's two things that come to mind. One is that 
virginity by itself becomes the entire indicator of whether you care about or have a value for sex, like a high value for sex, a high view of sex. And so if you lose your virginity or you're not a virgin, it means that you have a low view of sex and therefore a low view of the way of God that God has been like enforcing since the beginning. And it puts you as a person who has had sex outside of marriage into a category that includes the stuff that the Bible actually seems to have like a lot more critique of, like having sexual relations with your family members, seducing someone who isn't your wife, sexual violence and assault, abuse of children, uh, sex as a political tool. Like those things the Bible has a lot to say about and a lot of judgment to engage with. But what ends up happening for many of us is that the concept of virginity is overlaid with concepts that are inherently good. Honor, sanctification, fidelity, and love. And when those are the things that we're told virginity represents, then to, and that, but, but the things that are told to us are extrapolations of those concepts, like far away. When we engage with our virginity as a concept, we feel like we're leaning into honor and sanctification and fidelity and love and away from violence and uh, a life that God needs to judge or whatever kind of abstract whoredom feels like it exists in those conceptualizations. And so our sense that God loves us because we're virginal gets overlaid with all kinds of violence in the with a veneer of all these really beautiful things that I think are actually more holy concepts. And it feels so hard to imagine a virgin, a version. (laughs) (laughs) Words have lost all meaning. These Freudian slips of virgin are just, I gotta leave these in because they're so good. A version of life with creator and Jesus where our sexuality and and w- in whatever way that looks and an integrated relationship with our body and our desires and again that doesn't have to be expressed through um rampant right we, you and I have had this conversation about yes. you know um as a lot of folks in the Liberated Together community that I'm a part of begin to explore their sexuality, they go through what we lovingly call a hoe phase. And mm-hmm. we really try to show a lot of support to that because it has been so violently shut down. But you do not have to have a hoe phase to be growing into integration, right? It really right. is about permission to explore in a way that feels authentic and connected to who you are. And I always appreciate how you're pressing for nuance in that. But it's, it's almost hard to imagine that you could bring the fullness of that into life with creator because of how collapsed that has been. Yes. Down into no, to have life with creator and for, for creator to like you. And I'm not going to use creator. I would God because this, yes. it's, this yes. is God. God, a man. In order for God, the man, to like you. You have to be lovable, and what makes you lovable is purity, and what makes you pure is virginity. And letting go of that logic, it runs deep. And so maybe it just feels like worth asking, how have you seen people, or how can we help people begin to move out of this? Particularly, you and I have jokingly said, purity culture worked on us. And so particularly for folks who are like, I participated in this system for a hot minute, Maybe I'm years into a marriage. Mm-hmm. 
that is still functioning under a lot of these frameworks. How do we move forward? Yeah. And it's it's a good question because I think someone could listen to this whole thing and be like, these people don't have a high view of sex. And I'm like, I have an incredibly high view of a sexual ethic. I have a very high view of creator. I have a very high view of how people are in community and in intimate relationships with each other that is informed deeply by my relationship to creator. And I think that some of our, I think some of us might feel defensive of the idea of virginity, but if I ask you why, you might only be able to give me something like, well, it's God's best or like that uh, it's more integrous as an interpret, more in- integrous to an orthodox interpretation of the scriptures, which I also think is not particularly true. And so I think if you're feeling defensive about this, ask yourself why. Because I think for many of us, the first step toward engaging with our own sex and sexuality, sex, or, or engaging with our own sexual lives and intimacies is by asking, why do I feel so defensive about this? Um, but for many of us, one of the things that I think is is beautiful and opens up to us as we start an exploration and deep dive around why we're so committed to this idea is that we let sex be complicated. Hmm. One of the things that I've been talking about over and over again is that Christianity reduces sex to a very simple thing with two purposes. Like I said before, procreation and pleasure. Hmm. When there are thousands of reasons that one might want to have sex or engage in any kind of sexual activity. And I hope by now it's obvious I'm not just talking about penis and vagina intercourse, that I'm talking about sex in a very large umbrella expansive space. Um, because again, some of the stuff like I, we didn't talk about this, but we both have a lot of thoughts about it, which is like that there are so many ways that Christians use weird loopholes to try to get around what it means to lose their virginity. And so can you, can you just talk about that for a minute? Because I think that it's helpful as we deconstruct it to talk about the loopholes in it, because it starts to uh, unveil the absurdity of virginity as a concept in the first place, even if things like faithfulness, f- fidelity, self-control are things that we would believe in as biblical concepts. Oh, the loopholes, Brandy. (laughs) Get ready, y'all. I wouldn't let the young babies be around for this conversation. But particularly millennials, they went hard with anal sex is not sex. So it's not penis to vagina. So anal sex is fine. Okay. There's a lot of reasons that, that again, falls under the collapse definition of what counts as sex. But think about the logic of that, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I would say I think anal sex is pretty intimate. Yeah. I would say that um, it, it it falls under the umbrella of sexual connection. It's definitely bringing pleasure um, to one, maybe both partners. But to say the idea of loopholes, that logic is wild to me. You know, now there's like a whole, the Mormon, what is it called? Soaking, right? Yeah. Where it's like, you know, what makes it count with sex is in and out, penetrate. So if you just put your penis into the vagina and someone else makes sort of the movement, bounces the bed, that doesn't count as not having virginity. Again, what is the logic there that you are literally doing something that everyone would construe as sexual connection and sexual activity, but you're trying to say, no, you haven't done this specific definition, so you haven't crossed this line, and hence, like, what? Your community can still mm-hmm. accept you and creator can still accept you. No, God. This is, I can't use creator yes. for because there's a God. Um, and there's a lot of different versions of that that are out there, um, which are almost always about the pleasure of a straight man. Yes. Um, we have to say. 
that are these workarounds. Again, it's, there's no logic to it. That that just, I don't know how, Brandy, make it make sense. Why do you think people are clinging to these workarounds that, to me, I don't know, Brandy. Yeah. I don't even know how to talk about it any further than, like, I don't get it. Well, again, I, I described it this way in a liberated together gathering that we see sex as like a game of shoots and ladders where you get all the way to the top and then you suddenly fall down the biggest chute and end up right back at the beginning. Like that sex is this liability that if you have intercourse, then you're going to capsize your own life and backslide into hell. And so there needs to be, if that's the case, a defense of everything leading up to what you consider to be sex, you know, penis and vagina intercourse. And so it makes us ask the question often, like, how far is too far? Or what are the boundaries or the lines? I'm like, have boundaries. Please have sexual boundaries. Have boundaries, articulate them, know them. But most of us don't have boundaries. We have restrictions. And there's a difference between those things because restrictions are not rooted in values. Boundaries are. And so I think a lot of us were given restrictions around, well, if you start walking towards sex, you're going to start sprinting towards sex and then, oop, you're just in someone's bed. And not teaching people how to give or receive consent or how to know what they want or be able to articulate I mean, like, I don't think I learned anatomy until I was like in my tw- like early 20s. You know, like I, I couldn't name my own body that I've lived in forever. And so I think that there's this sense that there's a how far is too far line. And so then, which I think this is actually um, a progressive ideology that they did not mean to be one. But where I grew up, they were like, well, if it has sex in the word, it's sex. And what they meant was don't do anything sexual because it all like it's all going to lead you towards sex. But I was like... That actually is a very inclusive ethic for queerness and for for non uh, intercourse sex. And so I feel like there's but there's this way that what is articulated to us is, you know, is just boundaries and not actual proactive building of sexual ethics. I think that is so important because I think there is such a profound difference between being told rules that you're afraid of breaking and consent is mm-hmm. so much more about your active participation and yes. being able to assess, like, do you want this? Do you consent? And the other, and teaching people to perceive, have I asked for consent? Is this person actively participating? Because what ends up happening is if if what you're doing is forbidden, you can't talk about it. One, the naughtiness is part of what makes it appealing. But the moment you start asking for consent, you've brought it into you are consciously doing this. So you have to violate the rules with as few words as possible because that's the only acceptable way you fell into having sex with each other. You stumbled into it, right? We um, gave into temptation. We gave into temptation. All those ideas versus if you're talking about it like adults, people are making consensual decisions. You are agreeing that um, and listening to your partner, that level of kind of cognitive choice doesn't work under the framework of rules and restrictions where you don't actually actively participate in the decisions that you're making. It's so based on fear. It's such a profound level. Mm -hmm. That has its own consequences, though, because then if you associate anytime you're physically or sexually active with 
it it's really thrilling, but it's really because it's connected with naughtiness and forbiddenness. Yeah. And then you get into context where it's you get married and it's fine for you to be having sex with this person. There's no naughtiness and forbiddenness and people's desire disappears. It's mm. this is a whole journey with many Christian married Christian couples that I have journeyed with that is all fraught with all this the consequences of pur- purity culture. Yes. And in some of that, I think you're naming threads of disembodiment that play out really strongly. Um, Because I think that when we think about virginity or sex as breaking a rule or not breaking a rule, we can't actually tell whether we what we feel bad about when we have an intimate or a sexual encounter. Like when a couple or or two people or people uh, stumble and they feel bad after their experience, is that because they broke a rule? Is that because the Holy Spirit is convicting them or is it because they did something that was unsafe and didn't feel good to them? And when you can't determine, when you can't discern between the three of those things, we we lump everything into sex is bad. But then what we're told as a message, and I think this is a super dangerous message that is not accurate from the church, which is we we universalize and flatten sex into a universal experience where sex equals intimacy equals good. And I know a lot of us have had experiences with sex in and out of marriage where sex did not equal intimacy and it did not equal good. And it doesn't need to, right? Sex does not have to be about intimacy. You can you can have experiences that you want with your partner that aren't about that, that are about something else, that are about release, that are about stress, that are about all sorts of things. And making room for the complexity of sex and knowing why we feel what we feel really matters. Because I know little kids who have stolen a cookie from a tray and then came and told on themselves and felt bad about it, where I'm like, like, there's nothing inherently wrong with you eating a cookie. But you feel bad because you've been told not to do something and that you should feel bad because you violated the rule, not because you violated yourself. And so I think for many of us, we are in situations that are violating of our own ethics, values, what feels good to us, our own sexual identities. And we mistake that for the Holy Spirit or for some other kind of abstracted consequence that isn't about articulating what feels good to us, knowing what feels good for us, and being able to build a sexual ethic and a sexual practice out of those things. I think you're naming something so important, which is the conflation of so many different um, experiences, feelings. So for example, let's say someone's like, okay, I'm not going to give into purity culture. I'm going to go and explore hookup culture. But when you've been told that every aspect of hookup culture makes you a whore, then you can, are you figure? do you like it? Are you liking it because you're a whore? Are you liking it because you like it? Are you, all Mm -hmm. the, it's so hard to tease that apart. And so respecting that it is a process, right? Respecting that it's so much less two-dimensional than stay pure and then get married and then have amazing mm-hmm. hot wife sex on the other side, that it is so much more multidimensional than that. And then the undoing of all this indoctrination is going to be a multi-layered process where we really yes. just have to be so gentle and kind to ourselves. Maybe we'll try some things and be like, I do not in fact like that. Um maybe we'll choose to withdraw from certain things that we were always told would be what brought us joy and find great satisfaction in that. And that there's permission. I think, as you said early on, the stakes have become so high 
that part of the undoing is to just go, maybe the stakes aren't that high. Maybe there is room to just be curious, to learn, to explore, and even make mistakes and realize it's not having the um, level of consequence that I was always told mm-hmm. that it would have. And that yes. alone can be part of the undoing, the reintegrating, um, the healing. I just think it's wild that we're like, creator made sex, but hates it when you have it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a yes. rough, that's a rough, rough theology and view of, yes. of God. It really is. And again, the metaphors we're given around virginity suck. I have like, I had an artist illustrate some of the metaphors like sex is like a fire. You can get close to it, but don't touch it because it'll burn you or like, you know, the ones we talked about before. But I think what uh, ends up being maybe one of the operating narratives that stops us from exploring or figuring out things is that we just straight up don't have knowledge. And that the idea of talking about sex is in and of itself sinful or dirty or problematic or will talking about sex will make you want to have sex. And I'm like, I don't know what lives y'all are living. But I think there is just a sense that if we can't talk about sex, if we can't talk about the actual experiences that people are having, then we cannot heal and grow. And I mean, for all of the work that Christians did to try to make abstinence-only education a thing that reduced sex in Christian spaces, Christians are having as much, if not more, sex than the average Gen Z or millennial person. So it's not because of the abstinence-only education. It's because these streets are wild and because we're not having safe experiences or safe encounters. And so I would rather, I mean, I say this to people all the time. I know people who are like, oh, we're getting married in like two months after knowing each other. And I'm like, why? Like, well, we want to have sex. And I'm like, please, for the love of God, just have sex. Like because literally, I, for the love of God. Just, yes. Yes. To to love yourself, to love this person, to love another person, it is much better for you to just do this thing than to assume that the construction of marriage that we have now will somehow make you more spiritual or acceptable to God. Because at the end of the day, that is what virginity ends up being framed as being about. It's about your life being good and you being acceptable in God's sight and good in God's sight. And it doesn't play out that way. And so I think that instead of saying, don't do this thing, we I think we can say, you get to choose in your body how you engage with these things, how incremental you are in your sexual experiences, how soft and tender you are with yourself, how quickly or slowly, whatever, that's not even a good metaphor really, that you use in how you explore your sexuality, how you do that by yourself, how you do that with others. I think when we can do that, we can actually live out ethics and values in a way that is honoring and good and loving and hopeful and doesn't just leave us all in shame and guilt spirals that pull us farther away from the love of God because we feel like we have to hide rather than closer in as we ask, you know, God, what does it look like to have a sexual ethic that honors me, other people, and my relationship to you as are the greatest commandments? I'm like, what if those were, what what, what if that was our guiding ethic for sex? Not just don't have sex because you should just be married. Instead saying, what kind of sex reflects honor and love for God's self and others. What if it was that? I love that. I love that. And for me, the place where I have found the most helpful language 
um, because we need that because I was not, I went decades in the church with no words, right, to talk about sexuality, mm-hmm. desire my own body, is to read books and be made aware of resources that talk about a queer ethic um, mm-hmm. around sex and yes. sexuality because there's so much more language and value for mutual consent, mutual pleasure. It's not just about penis to vagina. I think there are many a heterosexual Christian marriage trapped in when he's done, we're done, and a woman mm-hmm. who's looking for her own pleasure is a whore. And yeah. um, that's so sad. Yes. And it's just, it's grievous. And so I have really appreciated um, things that are coming out of a queer ethic uh, has put words to something because yes. how you are controlled and how you're made powerless is to literally have no language to describe your own experience. And yes. so that can be a really helpful step forward. Um, I appreciate everything that you have said. It has been fun to interview you on this topic. Is there anything before we close that it feels important um, to add to this conversation that we have not had a chance to hit on that you want to just make sure that we take a pass at? I think that because virginity relies on a body being commodified, it makes sense to me that it would be hard for many of us to think about a life where virginity isn't at the center because we've been taught to and may actually feel like our sexual lives have left something lost in us rather than saying instead of something being lost, maybe something needs to be healed. Maybe the sexual encounters that we've had have been violent or have been non-consensual or have not been pleasurable for us and we stayed in them for lots of reasons we have sex for lots of reasons and so i think there's space to disconnect a little bit of the spiritual impetus from the conversation and to instead say what are the places where i need healing both in my ideology my theology and in my own body because when we hold up this idol of virginity it makes it impossible to frame and know our own experiences in the present and in hindsight rightly because we only have one frame to understand them through which is sin and brokenness rather than trauma coercion violence pleasure excitement self-exploration understanding our queerness there's so much more expanse that can't be held if virginity is our primary focal point in these conversations about purity culture i think that's really helpful and might be just so healing for folks to take experiences that have felt like they had to be forced into mm-hmm. one box of interpretation um, and to even be able to come back. And there might be experiences that you felt like you were supposed to feel terrible about and you can look back at and mm-hmm. go, actually, that was sort of a beautiful mm-hmm. young exploration of my queerness, of my desire. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was told to feel bad about that. But now I can look back and actually go, I'm proud of that young person. Yes. I'm proud of that old person. I'm proud yes. I'm proud of that. Um, I kind of love that, that there might be some painful reframings, but there actually might be some lovely yes. reframings that we get to reclaim. And I kind of like yes. that. I think that's really true and really good and gives us opportunities to have grace for ourselves in ways that we may have not before. And then I'll say the last thing I want to say, I realize we're going very long, but I've had so many thoughts about this. I'm like, we've probably touched on like half of what I've thought about for maybe not even half of what I've thought about for this stuff. And we could go really deep on all of these concepts. But I think that I want to do like one little peg to Genesis 2, because I think it is 
one of the main scriptures that I didn't talk about because I've talked a lot about on this podcast already, where we're told that a man and a woman in a heterosexual marriage have sex and that's what makes them one flesh. And so to pull apart from that flesh is to violate the very good thing of God or to cause harm to yourself. But I think there's other interpretations of that passage. And I think that we can just say that's not what that passage is trying to, that's not what that is trying to articulate in general. But I get where people come from with it. The implication of us believing those things is things like soul ties, like we joked about in the beginning, which is that the concept that when you have sex, you create an unbreakable spiritual attachment to another person, rather than thinking about that with a uh, codependency or boundarylessness or uh, abusive dynamics in your relationships, right? There's all kinds of things we could talk about there. But the idea that two become one flesh and then get like ripped apart over and over again does make you less of a person if you believe that ideology. And so I think many of us hold on to this ideology because we believe that we were one flesh with somebody and that that has eternal spiritual consequence for our bodies and for our lives. When I think there are other ways to read that passage, I think there are ways to read a story of an early family being formed and two people becoming one flesh is two people becoming one family, a family unit that God uses to bless the world. And I think if if we think about our intimate encounters as ways to experience and to be blessed and to allow the ways that we think about creatively our intimacies and how we talk about them as things that create blessing for people, I think that changes how we it flips the script on that narrative that you're just being like ripped apart and spiritually devastated in every kind of intimate encounter you have. And it allows us to get out of our heads a little bit and into our bodies, which I think is necessary in these conversations. Because if everything about sex in your life lives in your brain first, it will there will always be a disconnect from your body. And so I think some of us need to get a little bit out of our brains so that we can explore and then ask questions, simple questions like, did I like that? Did that feel good? Why did that feel bad? What would I do differently next time? What can I articulate with my words to my partner about what I'm experiencing? How can I ask for what I like? How can I initiate change? And you can do that whether you've been married 50 years or are just exploring sex for the first time. And so I think that feels really important to me to name that this exploration is not of some kind of esoteric, hell-bringing spiritual significance. It is significant. And everything we do impacts us. Everything is spiritual, but it can be just like a little bit less. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I love that. I really appreciate that. And I think uh, having seen um, a lot of different types of relationships, when you only have that one frame to interpret it, it's like, oh, it must have been because like we had sex. And I'd be like, I think it's because you got no communication skills from your family and you are enacting a lot of highly dysfunctional <laughs> dynamics and you feel terrible because this relationship is terrible. It's terrible. <laughs> yes. But there are a it's lot of reasons to feel bad about your relationship. Not, the penis vagina sex was not actually the primary destructor of this situation <laughs> as an up close witness <laughs> to the whole dynamic <laughs> of your relationship. And so I think, again, it just everything gets reduced and we aren't we don't are given the opportunity to come into maturity and growth in so many areas of our lives. And even again, that approach to marriage, my God, just getting married so that getting married so that you can have sex, it takes so much more to build a happy marriage. And let me just tell you, um, being in a sad marriage is its own special kind of sadness. Yes. Burn with desire. 
Um, <laughs> choose that option, Boo Boo Magoo. Choose that one. <laughs> so on that note, uh, let's close up. And, you know, you might decide that you need to do virginity episode number two because I know you have been thinking about this a lot, but I think this is going to give folks so much to think about. So thank you mm-hmm. for all these thoughts, these frameworks that you shared, um, and hopefully it will help folks feel like they can get out of the web of mm-hmm. this whole ideology that has had such a lingering, yes. lingering pain for so many of us. So thank you, Brandy. Yes. And thank you for allowing me space to nerd out and to wax on about things because it just feels so hard to have context where I can within, because I think someone had asked like, why don't you just do like a, like a lecture on this? And I was like, well, di- uh, dialogue is part of the pedagogy of the podcast that we want to reflect always that in conversation, we are doing theology and we are interacting with the divine in particular ways as we have conversations about divine stuff together. And so I didn't want to do this by myself. And so I'm really grateful for an opportunity to, even if I did talk a lot, because I had so many thoughts about this, to get to be within my own values and pedagogical approaches um, alongside you again. So thank you for that. It was a pleasure. Thank you for joining for another episode of Reclaiming My Theology. If you like what you hear, you can join us on Patreon, leave a review, or tell a friend. We appreciate you all and are so glad to be back. Y'all keep us doing this and we couldn't imagine a better community. So as always, even in the midst of all of the tensions which are ever present, let's keep trying to do a little bit better together.